Good morning, everybody. Thanks for coming and joining us today. And uh, thank you for joining us, those who are tuning in at home. We're glad you're part of us as well. So you heard the question there, is God on my side? This is a question that was brought to the surface in a cartoon that appeared in New Yorker magazine. Some men were sitting around the table in what looked to be a boardroom, and this was the caption on the cartoon. So the vote is as follows. Larry, Ruth, Dan, Sid, and Marsha are for the proposal. God and I are against it. Maybe you feel that way sometimes. Conflict can come out of nowhere, it feels like. It can start with some little issue, like maybe you left your clothes laying. That's my problem. That's why I bring it up all the time. You left something laying on the floor. Or you blew, blew up at one of the kids when you shouldn't have. You and your wife are now in this argument that you never intended to have. It can come between siblings. It can come between friends. It can come from so many different directions. So conflict can happen on this personal level. But then it can also happen on a national level, obviously. Countries rise up against countries. Politicians against politicians. As a matter of fact, shortly after the attacks on September 11th, there was an article that appeared in Time magazine written by a man named Rosenblatt, not a believer, but he's grappling with this question of whether or not God was on our side or on the side of Al-Qaeda. And he wrote this essay entitled, God is not on my side or yours, which gives you a sense of what direction he's going in here. In the article, he states, one would like to think that God is on our side against the terrorists. Because the terrorists are wrong and we are in the right. And any deity worth his salt would be able to discern that objective truth. But he goes on to say, but this is simply good-hearted arrogance cloaked in morality. The same kind of thinking that makes people decide that God created human beings in his own image. Now this secular journalist is saying that God's just not interested in people. And he goes on to say, I would like to offer the opinion that God is not thinking about us, or if he is, one has no way of knowing that. Now he raises an interesting question. Now clearly he is biblically ill-informed in what he's drawing in his essay. But he does raise an important question that I think we need to grapple with. Is God on our side? Is God on our side? I would like to approach this from both a national level and a personal level. As we go through the text today, you'll see these themes coming up. We're going to read 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11 this morning. Please stand with me as we read. 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They, enc they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. 
As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us! Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And it was a very great slaughter, for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. You may be seated. So we're continuing this morning through the book of 1 Samuel. We're coming up on chapter 4. But the book of 1 Samuel comes right on the heels of the book of Judges. And when you get to the book of Judges, at the end it says, There was no king in Israel, and everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. The stage is being set for a monarchy to come into Israel. It hasn't come yet. But even after this monarchy comes, these God-ordained kings are going to come in. But the, the people still have to ask themselves if they're going to follow the king or if they are going to follow God. It's a question that comes to us today, frankly. Will we ultimately put our trust in leaders of men or will we put our trust in God? I want to continue with that subject that I brought up at the beginning. Is God on our side? I want to approach it this way and I want to approach the text this way using a then, always, now kind of an outline. First, we'll talk about then, what the text meant then. We'll see that the Israelites, they misplaced faith and ignored sin. And then always, we'll talk about the timeless truth of this passage, that victory and defeat need correct interpretation. And then finally, how do I respond biblically to conflict? That's how we'll bring it into the, the now. And we'll talk about that on both a national and personal Level. We'll talk about this passage and what it means nationally for us as a nation and then personally uh, in our own lives. So let's go ahead and jump into this topic. And uh, from the very first verse, we see two things. First, it says, And the word of the Lord came to Samuel. <clears throat> now that's kind of lumped with the previous chapter. And then lumped with this chapter is the second part. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. Now the Israelites... Uh, they typically thought of themselves when they went into war as being in a holy war. And we see this through the book of Judges. God would call on the Israelites to go into the land of Canaan. He was going to be their instrument of judgment. And they assumed that when they went into a war, well, this is a holy war. And, and in this case, they decided they would be God's instrument of judgment. But notice nowhere in this verse does it say that God sent the Israelites into battle. This particular battle was more about self-preservation. So they go out to battle these Philistines. They are not, in this case, the instrument of God's judgment. <clears throat> we get to verse 2, and uh, they're defeated. 4,000 fell initially. And part of the problem is, is they are ignoring sin. 
We see this when we get to verse 3 and then verse 4. It says that when the people came into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? It's a good question to ask. They're accustomed to winning these things. Let us take to ourselves from Shiloh the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, that it may come among us and deliver us from the power of our enemies. Now, there's a lot wrong. There's a lot of wrong thinking, I should say, that's going on in this verse. We'll talk about some of that in just a minute. But then, again, notice what it says down in verse 4. So the people sent to Shiloh, and from there, Shiloh was the center of worship that time. That's where the, the temple was. And from there, they carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who sits above the cherubim. And notice what it says here. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, there's a reason the, the, the writer is calling our attention to this, because we saw what these two jokers were like in the last chapter. I'm talking about Hophni and Phinehas. These two guys were taking portions of the sacrifice for themselves that belonged to God. In addition to that, they're sleeping with the women who are, who are supposed to be there serving at the temple. And people knew this. So we've got these two crooked priests whose sins have gone overlooked. People are just proceeding on as though this kind of like didn't happen. The sins that these guys are committed, have committed. And then the Israelites attempt to manipulate God. So back in the passage we just read, they asked the right question. The elders asked the right question. How come we lost this fight? Why didn't God deliver them to us? But they come up with a very wrong solution. They think that all they need to do is get the ark. Now, my first introduction to this golden, ornate chest called the Ark of the Covenant is when I was sitting in a movie theater around 1982, <laughs> and Indiana Jones and his buddy go down into the well of the souls where all the snakes that were covering the floor. He said, I hate snakes. And they go, and they get the Ark, and they box it all up. Then they get discovered by the Nazis. Well, that was my introduction to the Ark. It's not a great introduction. It's a great movie. It's one of my favorites. I i got the movie poster, as a matter of fact. But it's not a great introduction to the Ark of the Covenant. See, the Ark of the Covenant was the residing place of God on earth in the temple. And that's a difficult thing to understand. I don't fully understand in what way God was residing there, but he was residing there. The passage speaks about the wings of the cherubim. Those are type of angels that were cast over, spread over the top of the Ark of the Covenant. So they go and they get the ark. They thought it would make their problems go away. But they're really exhibiting a wrong view of the Ark of the Covenant. Notice repeatedly through this passage, it's used by its entire title, the Ark of the what? Of the Covenant. The Israelites were in a covenant with God. He said, I will deliver you if you stay faithful to me, which they were not. And the evidence, this is evidenced by the presence of Hophni and Phinehas standing right there, their sins being ignored. See, they're treating the ark like it's some kind of a rabbit's foot. They'd be lucky if they brought it into battle. I like the way one commentator says this. This was an attempt by the elders to twist God's arm into helping them instead of trying to find out the reason for God's displeasure. They asked the right question. They came up with the very wrong answer. The Philistines had similar thoughts. If they captured it, they could use it. They're going to find out soon how very wrong they are about that. They have no faith in the invisible God, singular, of the Israelites. They 
referred to him as gods. They were polytheistic. So the Israelites, they misplaced their faith, and they ignored sin. So let's move on to this always perspective that victory and defeat need correct interpretation because these Israelites got it very, very wrong. See, God's requirement here was repentance. He wanted them to acknowledge the sins of these priests. It would have been better if these priests would have acknowledged, acknowledged their own sin, which they did not. And when it comes to conflict and dealing with conflict, sin on everyone's part has to be dealt with. These, these men should not have assumed that they were not in the wrong by not addressing these sins. And you also need to be aware of assuming that God's on your side, especially when it comes to conflict. Now, I need to frame that by saying, keep Romans 8.31 in the forefront of your mind. If God is for us, who can be against us? Absolutely. For those of us who've put our trust in Jesus Christ, God is absolutely for us. Now, the intent of this verse is to say that when we are standing for Christ in our lives, that he will never leave us, he will never forsake us. He's always for us. That isn't to say that anytime we go into a conflict, I am in God's special favor and the other person or party is not. So two problems need to be addressed here, I think, with this sort of thinking. First of all, nationally speaking, it's important to understand that we are not in a covenant with God the way that Israel was. We don't go to the Old Testament to develop a theology of war. Uh, I love the way another commentator states this. The Old Testament presents multifaceted perspectives on war and the assemblage of cultural and historical conditions surrounding most of those wars are in no way related to most modern conflicts. So don't confuse the United States with Israel. I do believe there are just reasons for going to war, but I don't go back and look at the nature of Israel in the Old Testament to understand what that is. The second problem is when we think that God is on our side in a personal conflict. You know, we're all sinners and we all bring sin into the conflict when we get into conflict with someone. It can come from, again, from any direction, but whether it be between us and a parent or a sibling or a spouse or a child, we're always bringing our own sin into it. Uh, I had um, I shared a meal just recently with a friend of mine, and um, he made the comment that, uh, you know, Chad, anytime I'm in a fight with my spouse, I have to acknowledge that 50% of it's my fault. And maybe the question we're asking isn't the right question. Maybe the question isn't, is God on our side? During the time of the Civil War, one of uh, President Lincoln's advisors said he was grateful to be on the side of the Union because God was on the side of the Union. And Lincoln told him this. He said, my concern is not whether God is on our side. My greatest concern is to be on God's side, for God is always right. So then, what does this mean for us now? I believe we need to change our question. The question isn't, is God on my side? The question is, are 
we on God's side. So what is this now perspective? And we need to respond biblically to conflict. And I think there's something here both on the national level and on the personal level, but I want to talk about the national level first. Historically, there's been three uh, responses to war that the church has had. The first is, is a crusade. And in a crusade, the church takes the part again like that of Israel. We are going to exact judgment on infidels who are not like us. And this is the way back in medieval times they responded to the Islamic invasion of the Holy Land. Well, we are God's people, and we are going to bring God's judgment on these infidels. And by the time you get to the Fourth Crusade, when these knights and soldiers were going to Constantinople, we see that the action and behavior of them is as bad, if not worse, than those who had already invaded. They were raping and pillaging as, quote-unquote, God's soldiers in the middle of this fight. By the way, this coming Thursday, we're going to talk about the Fourth Crusade. We're doing these Theology Thursdays now at the church at 7 p.m. We're going to talk about that Fourth Crusade and the role it played in splitting the Roman Catholic Church from the Greek Orthodox Church. If you wondered what caused that split, a big part of it was this Fourth Crusade. So these men, these people on these crusades, they didn't acknowledge the, the, the evil they had within themselves. They were bringing sin to the table as well, and it came out when they were in the middle of this war. So crusades is one response. Another response is pacifism. And pacifism has been defined this way. War is simply incompatible with Christian discipleship. And a refusal to participate in violence is the only proper Christian witness. Now, I have a lot of respect for traditions in Christianity that have held this view of pacifism. I just don't believe it works. I don't believe it works because the way to stop a tyrant is not by pacifism. And we know this from the example of World War II. Hitler was going to have to be stopped, and he needed to be stopped by force. So I do have respect for pacifism. Uh, I don't believe it's effective. Again, the only way to stop Hitler from killing Jews, I believe, was to go to war. And then there's this third approach. It's called the just war position, the just war position. And for centuries, Christians have grappled with this, this problem of war. Uh, way back to the, the fourth and fifth centuries, and some of the best thinkers on this go back to Augustine and Ambrose when they were considering war and the role of Christians in it, the role of the church in it. And they understood that perfect peace would not be possible here on earth. So back in those centuries, back when these barbarians were starting to encroach on the Roman Empire, they had to think through these things. And Augustine wrote a letter to uh, the, the Pope at that time. His name was Boniface, but there was only a church. There wasn't the Roman Catholic Church. It was just a church. And in that letter, this is what Augustine said in regard to war to the Pope. He said, peace should be the objective of your desire. War should be waged only as a necessity and waged only that through it God may deliver man from that necessity and preserve them in peace. For peace is not to be sought in order to kindle war, but war is to be waged in order to obtain peace. Therefore, even in the course of war, you should cherish the spirit of a peacemaker. 
So what is Augustine saying here? Yes, sometimes circumstances will necessitate war. And this has been the position of the church for several centuries, for, I would say, the church broadly speaking. That it was going to be necessary sometimes to engage in war. But even in that pursuit, what does it say? Cherish the spirit of a peacemaker. Don't forget why you're getting involved in this war to begin with. That you're there because we are trying to make peace. So some of these great Christian thinkers just at times saw the need for what they called a, a just war. And uh, this necessitates a need for a just cause, and they helped establish that as well. There are some questions and principles you can bring to the table here to help determine, well, is this a just war or not? One of those is, are there innocent, helpless victims involved? When those planes flew into those towers, innocent victims were being targeted. And then I came across this picture of this young lady, 14 years old. She was a Polish girl in Auschwitz, one of 250,000 killed in those camps. And this was just days before her death. This was just a few days after the death of her mother. So sometimes it is necessary to protect the innocent and the helpless victims. And then a second question is to ask, is this a last resort? Is this a last resort? Have other methods been tried and have not produced the needed results? Because if a government's about to go in and take life, the question needs to be asked, have we done everything we can to prevent this from happening? Force is only ethical when it is really necessary when no reasonable alternative is left. And then third is this idea of proportionality. Is this proportional? What do I mean by that? The idea that the evil effects of war should not exceed the evil to be prevented by going to war. In other words, before the United States is about to go to war with someone, they need to ask the question, is what we're about to do and the impact it's going to have on civilian life and the evil that will unfortunately happen, as does with all wars, is it going to outweigh the evil that will be prevented? Is the evil affected proportionally smaller than the evil that will be prevented? And by the way, interestingly, if you go back and look at uh, the end of World War II in Japan and Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the U.S. War, the U.S. Uh, uh, War Department actually dropped flyers on both of those cities to try to get as many people to evacuate as they possibly would to prevent the loss of innocent human lives. And Saddam Hussein was well aware of this. That's one of the reasons he would pack military facilities full of innocent women and children. So these are the just war principles or positions you could talk about. This has been held by the majority of Christians for the past 1,600 years or so, as Christians have put serious thought into this very difficult subject. So that's speaking on a national level. But then well, what about on a personal level? What does it mean personally and to respond to conflict in a biblical way. And again, this isn't about asking whether or not God is on my side. This is about asking, am I on God's side? So a conflict has popped up in, in those common ways that it does. Well, now then, what am I going to do? Do I need to confront? And there's, there's one question, three principles I want to give you here. By the way, Kent Sandy has done a great job in uh, writing a book called Resolving Everyday Conflict. If you want a good resource on how to go about as a Christian engaging in conflict with people and resolving tensions, 
It's a great resource. And the first question that he suggests, I use that as a, to help me write this part of the sermon, um, asking the question, is this worth fighting over? Is this worth fighting over? Proverbs 19 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In other words, can I, without brooding over it, without letting it fester in me, can I look over this offense? And we all, I think, have to do this. Sometimes it's just not worth getting into it. But there's some important questions that you need to ask before you go this route, uh, some things to consider, because this doesn't work if, one, it damages your relationship. If you cannot reconcile with this person in some way unless you, unless you confront them, or if it hurts other people, if you're just going to let something go, but this is going to hurt others, maybe even in a severely emotional or physical way, or if someone is abusive. If someone is abusive, you can't just look over it. So those are all considerations, but if you can let it go, let it go. It's kind of like when you're driving a car, and all those other people around you who just can't drive are making you mad. We can't just jump out of your car on the interstate when somebody really ticks you off. You've got to let it go. And from time to time, they may have to let something that you do wrong go. Okay? So it's sort of like the good driving approach to conflict. And then secondly, you've got to own your part. You've got to own your part. I'd mentioned earlier that a good friend of mine uh, said, Chad, I've, I've come to the determination that uh, when I confront my wife on something and we get into a fight about it, I have to own at least half of it. Well, even if you are only contributing 2% to this confrontation or conflict, you are 100% responsible for that 2%. So own your part. Make an apology where you need to make an apology. And then third, forgive and be reconciled. Forgive and be reconciled. I love Kent Sandy's definition of forgiveness. He's, uh, first of all, the biblical reason, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, it's because we are first forgiven that we can forgive others. This is the gospel coming in and equipping, equipping us, enabling us to forgive and again, this definition from Ken Sandy that I love, forgiveness is a radical decision not to hold an offense against the offender. It's a decision. It's not about a feeling. It's not about whether or not you're hurt. It is a decision that you're not going to hold this offense against them. You're not going to harbor it against them. Because unforgiveness is not a good option. I love his uh, definition of unforgiveness. It is the poison we drink, hoping others will die. And those other people, by the way, they don't even know you're drinking the poison. You're just the one sitting there, or standing there, letting it fester. And then, if possible, uh, be reconciled. Be reconciled. Um, this is what Christ modeled for us. This only comes as you are willing to forgive, and the other party, by the way, is willing to repent. It takes two to be reconciled. And then finally, love deliberately. Love the other person, the party, deliberately. Well, how do you do that? Well, it means praying for them. 
As a matter of fact, I think that's one of the best starting places, just praying for that person. And then also guarding what you say. It's about choosing not to gossip about them. It's about choosing not to try and garner support from your friends and family against that person. That doesn't mean you don't process things with them, but both parties need to understand that this isn't about a witch hunt. Also seeking godly advice. Whenever you're battling evil, it's important to get other people's perspective. Uh, our own sin can blind us to the truth of the situation, and other people can look at it objectively. And then also knowing your limits. Knowing your limits. Knowing how far you need to go in trying to love someone else. There's a great passage from Romans 12 that speaks to this. It says, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. You are only responsible for your part. And you need to know how far you need to go in loving somebody else. That doesn't mean that the day after they really hurt you, that you need to call them up and everything's going to go back to the way it was. No, that's, that's not what this means. This takes time. You've got to be honest with yourself and what you're ready to do. So I think we can sum, sum it up today this way. Be on God's side by handling conflict biblically. Again, it's not about asking the question, is God on my side in this? It's us always as Christians, seeking to handle things God's way, which is from a biblical perspective and having a biblical response. Please pray with me. God, you know that life down here, living in this fallen world, is not an easy one. Lord, you know better than anyone what it takes to forgive. Father, we're so thankful that you made forgiveness possible, even though it meant the sacrifice of your one and only Son. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for your willingness to subject yourself to all of the evil that came against you, God, to pay for our sins. And I pray that we would not forget that. As, as others wrong us, that we would not forget the forgiveness that we have first been given. And that would enable us to forgive others. And God, as we go into this time of communion, Lord, I pray that you would prepare our hearts. I pray, God, that we would do this with a deeper understanding, Lord Jesus, of what you accomplished when you died on the cross to save us from our sins. Be with us now. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. As the ushers are coming up to hand out communion, uh, I want to go back and read a portion of the text that I've already read today. This is verses 5 through 9 of chapter 4. It says, As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? A few things to point out here. One, we see, and you all can go ahead and, and pass out the bread and the cup. We see that there was an acknowledgement of the power of this holy God. 
that both the Israelites and the pagans understood the power of the one who had come to the Israelites. And they have a response. They wanted deliverance. That was the cry of the Philistines. And they said they have a God in their camp. We are blessed in that Jesus Christ is the God who came into our camp to deliver us. And as we take communion this morning, I hope that you'll appreciate what it was that Jesus did for you and I. He came into the camp, God become man, to walk in, become one of us, and pay for our sins. So just take a few moments as they continue passing out the bread and the cup and meditate on that truth about our good and holy God. Jesus delivered this meal to his apostles who recording it in his word have delivered this to us God's word says the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread and when he had given thanks he broke it and said this is my body which is for you do this in remembrance of me in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Please pray with me. Almighty God, be praised. Let us not forget what you've done on our behalf.